Hello and welcome to Based on a True Story. Can you believe it's the final month of the year? It's almost 2020. Today's episode is going to carry on what's become a little bit of a tradition here on the podcast. I'm speaking, of course, of the Christmas special. It started a couple years ago when we took a step back from movies to just enjoy some Christmas-themed classic stories. Then, last year, we heard the entire tale by Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. This year, we'll carry on the tradition of a non-movie-based Christmas special, but with a few changes. The first change you'll notice is that this episode is not being released right on Christmas. I thought it'd be nice to have more time to enjoy this episode leading up through the holiday season to the holiday itself to get into the Christmas spirit. The second change is that we won't be covering a classic Christmas tale this year. You can always go back to the previous years if you want to hear some of those Christmas classics. (laughs) After all, they're classics for a reason. Today, I'm excited to present this year's Christmas special as I'm joined by the author of The History of Christmas, Heather Lefebvre. And no, that last name is not a coincidence. Heather is my sister-in-law, and as soon as I found out that her book was published, I asked if she would be willing to come onto the podcast to share more information about, well, the history of Christmas. (laughs) And speaking of her book, hang out until the end of the episode to find out how you can win a signed copy for free. Right now, though, it's time to set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. If you're a longtime listener, you already know how this works. If you're new to the show, welcome. Here is how this goes. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, and that means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, the tradition of giving gifts on Christmas Eve came from Charles Dickens. Number two, the name Christmas came over a thousand years after the day was celebrated. Number three, there really was a St. Nicholas that inspired the legend of Santa Claus. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode. And then by a simple process of elimination, you'll be able to find out which one is the lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to get Heather on the line to chat about the history of Christmas. Christmas today is filled with festive family gatherings, great food gift-giving, decorations. And I'd like to start by focusing on one of those decorations, the nativity. Now, the reason I'd like to start there is because for a long time, the nativity scenes kind of shaped how I used to imagine that first Christmas might have been. And I don't think I'm alone there. After all, in the Christian tradition of the nativity scene, it's supposed to kind of depict that first Christmas, as told from Luke 2, verse 7. Now, not all nativity scenes are the same, but generally speaking, it looks pretty similar. You have Mary and Joseph. They're looking over a baby in a manger that looks kind of like a wooden bassinet, very uncomfortable looking. 
Uh, and then sometimes you have three wise men in there. There's almost always hay, animals, and all of it's kind of set in a standalone building by itself. It looks kind of like a barn uh, because the inn was overbooked, as as the Bible says. Of course, I don't expect anyone to assume that the inn is a Holiday Inn or, or Motel 6 like we think of the word today, but it doesn't stop there because when you explain the manger in your book, my in my mind, that's a very different picture from the wooden bassinet looking thing that I see in a lot of nativity scenes. And I think a lot of people today might have a mental image of what that first Christmas might have looked at and have it be uh, driven by a nativity scene that they see. But that might be wrong. Could you paint a picture of what that first Christmas might have actually looked like? Sure. So what scholars right now think that first Christmas probably looked like was a bustling household in Bethlehem, just a a regular house that a regular everyday family would live in. And that house would have been divided into two parts. There would have been the part for the family to actually live in, eat, have their food, sleep. And then in the same structure under the same roof would be a part of the house that would be for keeping their animals, especially overnight. So yes, there might be some hay there and probably a manger, although the manger would have most likely been made out of stone a stone trough that was chiseled out. And that manger probably functioned as the separation between the animal side of the home and the people side of the home. So what most likely was happening in the first Christmas was Joseph and Mary arrived in Bethlehem during a very crowded time because of the Roman census when everyone was returning to their hometown. So it was kind of like we do at Christmas where we all travel back to see our relatives and our houses are filled to bursting with people sleeping on the floor and all the spare bedrooms. So Joseph went to his relative's house and their guest room was full. There was no place for them to stay. All the guest rooms were probably full in Bethlehem. The only place for them to rest, for Mary to have this baby, was in the animal side of this house. The manger would have provided maybe the only safe place to place a baby so that it wouldn't be trampled on the floor by either the animals or the visiting relatives. I think we got the idea of an inn from medieval interpretations of the Greek word kataluma, which can better be translated as a guest room. So when Joseph knocked on the door, there was no room in the guest room for Mary and Joseph So they had to be put in the animal side of the house. So probably the first Christmas was loud, hot, smelly, full of hay, yes, bustling with people. And I mean, maybe they took the animals out so Mary and Joseph could have a little privacy to have the baby, but maybe the animals were there too. So yeah, quite a different picture than we all grew up with, but scholarship changes over time. And thanks to archaeology and Greek scholars, this is probably closer to what really happened. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a very different picture than I think of when I see the nativity scenes and things. It kind of seems quiet and by itself. And, you know, it is its own building. And so you don't expect a lot of people there. And the animals are all well-behaved. <laughs> we like this romantic idea of quiet and peaceful. And uh, everyone wants, wants that in their mind at Christmas. But I think it was a lot more like 
our real lives in general, crazy and chaotic and bustling. In your book, you mention how no one kept track of birthdays back then, which makes sense from a historical perspective. But then to contradict that, we still know when Christmas is. And so they had to have tracked something. Can you give an explanation of how we began celebrating Christmas on December 25th? This really puzzles scholars about exactly when and how it came about. But the the best sort of way we can explain it is, yeah, no birthdays were being kept, kept written down around Jesus' time. However, as Christians moved into the Roman Empire, we went through the first few centuries of church history, Roman persecution came on hard. And in fact, many Christians were put to death. And the early church was in hiding. They wanted to remember these Christians that died, and they started recording death dates. So the death dates started to be written down and remembered by the early church. And there was a list that was compiled that was passed around many Christians knew about. So over time, this list began to include a remembrance for Christ's baptism, and of course, a remembrance for his death and resurrection, which that date was easy to come up with because it always fell with the Jewish celebration of Passover. So there's no trouble on finding a date for that. There wasn't any record of Christ's birth, so people had to come up with an explanation of when that could be, and there's all sorts of lines of, well, it would be nine months from his conception, and we'll set his conception in March, March 25th, so you count nine months, and that's December 25th. Everyone had their own ideas for this. However, there was something else going on in the culture, and that was the fact that the Roman culture was celebrating already a a huge festival in December for a week called the Festival of Saturnalia. And it was accompanied by feasting, people being off of work, a lot of merriment, drinking going on. They also had another separate festival specifically on December 25th, which was their winter solstice date. And that was the festival of the unconquered sun. And so there's a lot of speculation that as Christianity was growing and spreading in Rome, this December 25th date, which was already a holiday, to a sun god could easily assimilate and be converted into a Christian holiday to the son of God. Official records from at least 345 AD show that Christians were now celebrating the birthday of Christ on December 25th. Almost sounds like a little bit of convenience in there. There was already a celebration going on. And so this is as good a time as any, (laughs) almost. I mean, we don't really know when it is. Right, 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 right. It seemed very convenient. And when the Roman Empire converted to Christianity in 313, suddenly Christians could be celebrating out in the open. And this gave them something to focus around when all their neighbors were focusing on pagan festivities. Okay, that makes sense. The weather is getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. 
access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now, how about the name Christmas? Because I'm sure, I mean, the first Christmas wasn't in their minds, the first Christmas. (laughs) But when did the name Christmas come into the picture? So that took a really long time. And uh, it's funny to think that the word Christmas was not in use until a thousand years after Christ was born. The first record of the actual word, it would be an old English word for Christmas, um, comes into the records in 1038. And it's um, two words put together, Christ's Mass. Mass being the word that the Roman Catholic Church, which was pretty much the only church in the West at this time, used for a worship service. So this was Christ's worship service as opposed to a a worship service to remember a different saint. There were masses named after various saints throughout the year in celebration of their death dates. So like a, a Peter mass almost, like that would be to celebrate him, a specific for him, and then this one is Christ mass. Is that, am I getting that right? Yes. So Martin mass would be to celebrate St. Martin's death date. And so Christ's mass was not his death, but for his nativity. Thousand years later. Wow. Do we know uh, what they called it before that? The celebration before that time? I think just a nativity, because in the early medieval years, they were preaching nativity sermons. Okay. Keep it simple. <laughs> Today, you think of Christmas, and one of, the, one of the key things, as I mentioned in the beginning, was gifts and giving gifts. And that's one of the most popular traditions around Christmas today is giving gifts. When did the, that tradition of giving gifts start to take shape? For the Christians, as they were beginning to celebrate this anniversary of Christ's birth, gift giving really wasn't a part of that. They were focused more on the religious aspect So it would have been more of going to church, having a church service, maybe having a meal in their homes to celebrate. But gifts were not really a part of it. Um, Gifts were somewhat of a part of the Roman Saturnalia festivals and other winter pagan festivals in Europe. But also the gift giving seems to have taken place more around New Year's celebrations, not so much for Christmas. So there was some gift giving going on, 
mostly it was gift giving from the rich to the poor. So the nobles might provide gifts for the peasants. A master might provide gifts for the servants. It wasn't really focused on children. These were adult festivities and celebrations. Definitely not child-focused yet. The whole gift-giving for everyone really came into its own during the Victorian era, especially handmade gifts were uh, popular at that time. And the Victorian era is also when a child-centered holiday came into its own and gifts became very important. Gifts for children in the sort of late Middle Ages to uh, 1500s, 1600s would have been given on December 6th, the Feast of St. Nicholas, or on January 1st. So really, it's the last 200 years where the gift giving at Christmas has, has become a major focus of the holiday. Okay, so relatively recent overall, as far as the overall celebration is concerned. Now, you mentioned the dates that gifts were given, but in your book, you mentioned Martin Luther gives, give, gave his gifts on Christmas Eve even though in the 1500s it was popular to give gifts on the celebration of St. Nicholas that you mentioned earlier. Now, I know a lot of people today even carry on that tradition, probably without even realizing that it may have been Martin Luther who started that. Was he actually the one who started that tradition of giving gifts on Christmas Eve instead of Christmas? It's always hard to say who starts what. Martin Luther had a lot of popularity and whatever he did kind of spread around the whole Western world. So he is attributed in Germany with switching the gift giving from December 6th, the Feast of St. Nicholas, to Christmas Eve. So we could definitely attribute his influence to that. Martin Luther was one of the foremost leaders of the Protestant Reformation. So he was concerned with correcting abuses in the Roman Catholic Church. Something he was concerned about was that there was so much focus on venerating the saints, and he felt that some of that focus should be returned to Christ. And one way he could do this with children was uh, switching the gift-giving for children from the Feast of St. Nicholas to Christmas and switch out this gift-giving figure from St. Nicholas to the Christ child. So, yes, he kind of was a forerunner in switching the gift-giving and making it focused on Christmas Eve. You mentioned St. Nicholas in there because that's something I want to talk about because that is, of course, an alternative name for Santa Claus, jolly old St. Nick, right? So what does St. Nicholas have to do with Christmas? (laughs) And when does that Christmas tradition, because you were saying St. Nicholas, uh, the celebration was earlier in December. When did that start to kind of merge into the Christmas tradition and start mixing St. Nicholas and Santa Claus and it all kind of becomes a a hot mess of of different characters merged into what we know today. Well, that's exactly what it is. It's all a hot mess. And we could fill a whole book with the history of St. Nicholas and Santa Claus. So uh, let me try to pull out a few key points of this history and how it all fits in. So we do know that there most likely was an actual man named Nicholas who was a Christian bishop of Smyrna. That would be in Turkey. He lived around the time of 270 AD to 343. Now, the tricky part is that we don't have any written records from his actual living time period. The first records we have of his life come 400 years later. 
So that means it's hard to prove what's right and, and what's been made up. Uh, the other thing that adds to this, there was another Nicholas of Sion who, and these two lives became confused and no one knows wh which information goes with, with which Nicholas. And then in the Middle Ages, it became popular to compile lives. And these were sort of embellished stories of important figures and they were written with good intentions. The, the lives were written to be moral lessons uh, for, for the people alive then. They took people that maybe had done something good and they really added extra good stories to their lives, it, hoping that this would motivate current people to do good things. So a lot of legends grew up around this name of Nicholas especially the legend that we hear in various forms of, of him wanting to help a poor man who had three daughters. Uh, these three daughters couldn't marry because they didn't have money for dowries. So Nicholas decides to use some of his wealth and he puts some gold in his sack and one night throws it in the window. And the next morning, one of these daughters discovers it and lo and behold, she has enough money to marry. Well, then the same thing happens two more times so that each of the three daughters are able to marry. So there's all kinds of versions of the story of the gold maybe lands in someone's shoe or, or the gold comes through in a different way than the window. It, it, lots of different details. Uh, but the, the gist of the story is that Nicholas was a kind and good man. He cared for young people and we should emulate what he's doing. His fame spread, and he was well-known from Russia all the way to the western part of Europe. And eventually, December 6th became the legendary date of his death. So no one really knew the date of his death, but December 6th was somehow decided upon, and so he eventually became Saint Nicholas, and he was remembered every year on December 6th. And then somehow the gifts got started, he was also known as the patron saint of sailors, and he was the patron saint of a few other things, too. So his scope of influence was very wide and varied. But he somehow, somehow he came to also be the, the, the saint who gave gifts to children. He was well known as a saint when the Reformation hit, and the Protestants really wanted to back off on the remembrances of saints and the veneration that was happening. Of course, in Germany, Martin Luther switched the focus from December 6th to Christmas Eve at the Christ child. In England, they just gave up on St. Nicholas altogether and introduced their own gift-giving figure by the name of Father Christmas. The Netherlands stopped having a St. Nicholas during the, the Reformation, and somewhere afterward, they came up with their own version, whom they called Sinterklaas. So you can begin to hear the progression from St. Nicholas to what we know as Santa Claus with this middle name of Sinterklaas. In the 1800s, it was these figures were becoming popular again in Europe as the, the original effects of the Reformation were kind of lessening. Well, it happens that Washington Irving, a famous American writer, was living in New York in the early 1800s, and he decided to write a comical history of New York. So you have to catch that word comical. This was not to be a true history of New York. This was to be sort of a joke. And in his book, he described the importance of St. Nicholas to their first residents of New York City. 
those residents being from the Netherlands. So Sinterklaas was mentioned, St. Nicholas, it was kind of all in one. And Washington Irving described this Sinterklaas as coming down chimneys and flying above people's heads. So this idea is moving from a saint of the Christian church to a mythical character who can sort of work magic. And then around the same time, an anonymous poem was published the night before Christmas. And that described further details of this this emerging figure. Uh, There was a sleigh, reindeers. It was Christmas Eve. There were no saintly robes that that, um, St. Nicholas would have been in in the Middle Ages. Instead, he now had furs. And Sinterklaas suddenly translated into American English as Santa Claus. So throughout the 1800s, this whole Santa Claus thing began to develop. I think the newspapers uh, every year at Christmas would would print more details of this. There would be drawings, and every year the drawings added something more, maybe a belt, different details of maybe the names of the reindeer. Finally, in the 1930s, Coca-Cola decided to use Santa Claus as part of their advertising campaigns and that really helped to consolidate everything that was going on as to who Santa Claus was, what he looked like, and what he did. So, yes, it's really been less than 100 years to have this modern idea of a Santa Claus in the red clothing with his flying reindeer. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. It sounds like almost you know the entire world had something to say. They added a little bit of a tradition here and a tradition there and a little bit there and a little bit here in order to create this, this overall character. Actually, yeah, that's a good way to describe it. It was like a 1,700-year-in-the-making project that everyone participated in. Yeah. There were two things that kind of stood out that you mentioned there, and one of them was when St. Nicholas, when the story of him putting the gold in the window as uh, for dowry, and then the story of, you know, the, the comical uh, story in, in New York of... Um, being one of the first mentions of coming down the chimney. And those two things, I don't know if they're they're tied together at all, if, if he may have written about coming down the chimney is that way. But when you're talking about St. Nicholas putting the, the money in the window, the first thing that comes to mind is, oh, that could easily translate into he's coming into the house some way in an unconventional form in order to give gifts. In that case, it was dowry. Not necessarily the gifts that we get today, <laughs> but yeah, it was. It's interesting that even little bits like that could be used, changed over the over the years, and and pull into the story that we know today. Oh, absolutely, and I think probably Irving was pulling off of that story because that story has been told in every country in a different way. There probably was a chimney version back then. <laughs> yeah, depending on the architectural of the different regions and and houses in that time and and such. Now, talking about gifts for Christmas, and regardless of where Santa comes in, if he comes in the window or he comes down the chimney, regardless of how the gifts get there, we know during Christmas, 
they all end up in one place, and that is under the tree. How did the tree, or the pine tree, I should say, because it seems like it's always a pine tree, and I have yet to celebrate Christmas with a dogwood or an apple tree or anything. How, how did this become a part of the Christmas tradition? This is also something that is shrouded in obscurity and really hard to pick out exactly how did this all start. Some people attribute it to Martin Luther, but I think we can be safe in saying he probably didn't start that. Uh, we do know that pagan winter holidays often involved decorating homes outside of homes with greenery, mistletoe, holly. These were all symbols of fertility of the spring coming around again. And as Christians adopted a lot of these pagan traditions into their religious ceremonies, they changed the meanings so that holly could be seen to represent the red berries as the blood of Christ, the the thorns on the holly as um, the crown of Christ on the cross, these types of things. So the whole decorating with greenery stayed alive in the Christmas celebration, even as it was taken over by the Christians. Where it went from decorating with greenery outside to actually bringing the tree inside the house, we're not quite sure. Probably the late Middle Ages, 1400s, 1600s. We do know Germany seemed to be the area where it came from. And then during Victorian times, it was famously made more popular by Prince Albert, importing his growing up years experience into that there with Queen Victoria and their nine children. There was a, a picture of their family standing around their Christmas tree in the palace that was published in the newspapers and and went viral, as we would say now. Uh, And from then on, everyone wanted to have a Christmas tree, just like the royal family. So it's definitely something that started in Northern Europe, where we have pine trees. Uh, It's not something that other parts of the world really had in mind. But then again, Christmas really was started and celebrated more in the European area of the world and not so much in other cultures as as I talk about later on in the book. I, I think that the first winter celebrations were an antidote against the depressing weather of uh, December and January. And that, that's not something that the rest of the world that had a more moderate climate really needed. And that's probably why Christmas really concentrated in Europe. And that makes sense why there would be so many European traditions heavily, heavily influencing what we know today as just traditional Christmas celebrations. Right. Now, speaking of that, there's a lot of uh, stuff that, that you've mentioned up until now that seems to kind of all come together into the Christmas celebration that we have today. I would imagine if we go to a Christmas celebration in the 1500s, we wouldn't really recognize it as a Christmas celebration. If we go to a Christmas celebration in year 1000, it wouldn't necessarily recognize it as a Christmas celebration. And I, I know that where you go is going to make a difference too, you know, where in the world that celebration is. But is there an era of history where if we went back in time, it would start to resemble celebration and traditions that we have today? I think it has to be the Victorian era. This is really when we see a lot of the elements that we enjoy today coming into their own commercialization of of the whole holiday. 
carol singing, card sending was invented, gift giving kind of exploded. The whole child-focused holiday came into being. Um, Santa Claus was gaining popularity. Really, when it comes down to it, people were moving away from a more religious focus to the secular commercialization, which is often what we see today. There were a lot of writers in the 1800s who were writing about Christmas. And in fact, I was kind of disappointed to discover that some of these writers, like Washington Irving, almost invented a a late medieval type Christmas and wrote about it in their books as if this was actually how Christmas was being celebrated to convince their readers of all these wonderful traditions that needed to take place. And reading that, I was like, wait, what? We're not carrying on these traditions that have been in place for hundreds and hundreds of years. We're just sort of trying to have what Washington Irving invented in his mind for us. Can you give an example of what one of those might have been that was not really a tradition that he made up? Well, it's not uh, fresh in my mind exactly right now, but sort of the idea that Christmas was a huge, huge deal and that involved so much presents, feasting, days and days of feasting and the whole idea of going to a little village where there's tons of snow and everything's jolly and happy. It I don't think it was really quite such a big deal as Irving made it out to be. I think the celebrations at that point were quieter, not so big, um, not so detailed and involved. Well, I guess you had to start a tradition somewhere and if nothing else, make it up, right? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But yeah, the books available to people to read about Christmas celebrations and then to want what they read as part of their own celebration, this all happened in the Victorian era. Okay. And then, so yeah, he made it into, this is just what people have done all along, even if not necessarily the case. (laughs) Yeah. Now, as you were researching this book and maybe that, maybe you already gave the answer there, but I was curious, was there anything about the, the overall history of Christmas that really just shocked you and surprised you that you didn't expect? Definitely. The setting of the first Christmas kind of has surprised me. I've been thinking about that for a number of years as I've been researching that. I think I was surprised. I didn't hadn't quite realized that Christmas had been outlawed in the original colonies here in America. I think I knew that it had been outlawed in England during the 1600s, but for quite some time in America, it was illegal to celebrate Christmas. Why was it illegal? What was the reason behind that? <laughs> so this is so it, it, hard to get your head around, but. When the Ref- the Protestant Reformation came in, they were concerned to to remedy some of what they perceived to be abuses in the Catholic Church or things that had strayed maybe away from Scripture in their mind. So they did not see a mandate in Scripture for this celebration of Christ's birth. And they felt that was adding to Scripture to require people to come for special services when the Bible did not require that. So they felt that this was not necessary and was maybe putting an unnecessary burden on people. They were also concerned about the drunkenness and crazy things happening with the non-religious celebrations of Christmas. And they thought it's better for our children if they don't even have access to that. So, so let's just get rid of it all. It probably didn't help thinking of the history between the Protestant and, and Catholic and the fact that 
the name Christmas <laughs> is has mass, right? So it's very, very on the Catholic side, whereas on the on the Protestant side, they probably weren't a, a big fan of that. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Now, at the, the end of each chapter in your book, I love you have some discussion questions, uh, suggestions for how to celebrate Christmas the way that they did in, in different points in history. And I really thought that those were a great addition. It's a, a perfect way to learn about the history of Christmas as a family together and kind of experience it as if it, you know we were going back in time. But then I love that you, did, you didn't stop there. The stories throughout history in your book are accompanied by recipes to go along with it. There's the the shepherd's meal to send your taste buds back to the time of the first Christmas, the historic German Christmas cookies, Italian soups, mince pies. I don't know that I've even had a mince pie. Uh, Edible tree bark uh, going along with another story we didn't even talk about, but it's in your book, the um, story of Boniface and the Oak of Thor. There's so many great recipes in your book. When I was reading, you know, the history of Christmas, I wasn't expecting to get recipes there. Can you explain a bit about why you decided to include recipes in your book? I love history and I love teaching history and I've been teaching history to kids for at least 15 years. And one thing that I have noticed when teaching kids and and adults for that matter the more ways that you can experience history with all of your senses, the longer the information is going to stick with you. And so I really purposed in this book that I wanted people to think about what it sounded like at the these different Christmas celebrations, what it felt like, the temperature, the, the weather, uh, what it would taste like to actually be at these celebrations and, and eat these foods. And so I have an active imagination. And, and I like to think that when I'm eating these recipes, I could close my eyes and just taste what I'm tasting and imagine myself right back there in that time period. And so I think recipes can be a really fun way to experience history and almost pretend we're back there. That's great. Wrapping yourself in the immersion of, of, of history. Yeah. What a, what a better way. And I happen to know from experience that you are an amazing cook. And so I can only imagine what your house smelled like as you tested some of these recipes. Do you have a favorite from the book that, that you made? Yeah, it's, it would have to be the candy cane cookies, which would be um, from the 1950s chapter. I think candy canes have always been my personal symbol of Christmas since I was a little child. And a good friend of mine introduced those cookies to me about 15 years ago. And ever since, I have to make them every year. And they look like candy canes. They taste like peppermint. And yeah, they say Christmas to me. That is a winning combination right there. Thank you so much for coming on to chat about the history of Christmas. And I think I've mentioned this to you off air, but I will say it again. I love the approach that you took in this book. You know, a lot of history books are like textbooks and and very kind of dry. This is very story driven. I have a lot of fond memories of my own mother reading stories to us as kids. We'd gather around and she would read stories, especially around Christmas time. And as I was reading your book, I could easily imagine this being one of those books that you gather the kids around chow down on some of that edible tree bark or or, or uh, candy cane cookies or whatever it is and just learn about the history of Christmas. Before I let you go, can I get you to let us know where we can get a copy of your book? 
You can find A History of Christmas on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target.com, and you can find me at heatherwinslowlefebvre.com, and I also have a newsletter sign up there. You can sign up to get my newsletter. Thanks again so much for your time. Thanks for having me. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. Special thanks to Heather for sharing her time and knowledge with us. Now, if you want to learn more about the history of Christmas, I really can't recommend her book enough. It's called, simply enough, The History of Christmas. And as I mentioned earlier, it's not a typical history book. It goes through Christmases throughout history and turns them into stories that are a perfect way to share this information with your whole family and immerse yourself in that time period. Now, at the beginning of this episode, I also mentioned you can have a chance at winning a signed copy of Heather's book. If you want your name in the running, all you have to do is to share your favorite Christmas tradition on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag BoatsPod. That's for based on a true story. So that hashtag is B-O-A-T-S-P-O-D. For example, in my case, I think my favorite Christmas tradition growing up was the barbecue roast beef. We didn't have a massive family meal on Christmas Day, but instead, my mom would make a huge batch of barbecue roast beef. It was the only time in the year that we would have this. And there would be a bunch of other foods, everything from fresh veggies to cheese danish, and it would all be spread out on the kitchen counter. And then at any point throughout the day, if you got hungry, you could just grab whatever you wanted. And then we would all gather around in the living room and and chow down on good food and just enjoy each other's company. Now, as a kid, I loved that because it meant you could go get something to eat and then get right back to playing with whatever toys you got. (laughs) And of course, as an adult, I also enjoyed it because, again, it allowed you to go get your food and then just enjoy each other's company. So what's your favorite Christmas tradition? Share it on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag BoatsPod. That's B-O-A-T-S-P-O-D. And then next week, Heather will pick a winner. And if you're that lucky winner, we'll reach out to get some contact info to send the book along. Of course, if you don't want to wait for a chance to win, you can always just pick up your own copy of The History of Christmas by Heather Lefebvre. I'll make sure to include a link to where you can get a copy of your own in the show notes, as well as on the page for this episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, the tradition of giving gifts on Christmas Eve came from Charles Dickens. Number two, the name Christmas came over a thousand years after the day was celebrated. Number three, there really was a St. Nicholas that inspired the legend of Santa Claus. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's start with number three. That is true. As Heather mentioned, even though we don't know a lot about the details of the real person, most scholars believe there really was a St. Nicholas who was born in Lycia, which is geographically located in present-day Turkey. That brings us to number two. 
That is also true. For centuries, the holiday we now know as Christmas wasn't even called Christmas. Even though we don't know for sure exactly what name was used, and it's also likely that there were different names used in different regions of the world, one of the more popular names used, as Heather pointed out, was simply the Nativity or Christ Nativity, which Nativity then means the time of one's birth or place of origin. That means the lie is number one. Even though the Victorian era around the time of Charles Dickens was one of the biggest inspirations for many of the traditions that we have today at Christmas time, as Heather explained, it was Martin Luther in the 15th and 16th century Germany who is most often credited with the tradition of giving gifts on Christmas Eve instead of on Christmas Day itself. Now, the last thing to mention are the final stats for the creation of this episode, as we've been doing. Today's episode took a total of 19 hours to create and cost $13.99 in out-of-pocket expenses. And as I always do with these stats, I want to point out that time and cost is only for my time for this one episode. So that does not include the countless hours of my guest time, researching the subject that we talk about, or it doesn't include any of the ongoing costs for example, the monthly podcast and website hosting costs. It also doesn't account for any of the time outside of writing, researching, and producing this one single episode. For example, the time it takes to maintain the website, things like that. Don't forget you can help keep Based on a True Story ad-free and independent by supporting the podcast over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. And as a way of saying thank you, you'll get access to hours of exclusive bonus content on the producer's feed. Now, if you're not able to support the show monetarily, no problem at all. I'm so happy that you've given me some of your precious time for the last hour or so, and I hope you've enjoyed this time together as much as I have. That brings us to an end of this episode, and that also means we're at an end of what will be the final public episode of Based on a True Story in 2019. From my family to yours, I hope you have a very wonderful holiday season, and I'll chat with you in 2020. Well, that is unless you're a patron of the show. If you're a patron of the show, I'll chat with you sooner than that, because we still have some bonus content coming out this month on the producer's feed. Regardless of when I chat with you next, thank you so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.